0: Hello everybody, welcome once again to Ruth Is Stranger Than Fiction. of is Stranger Than Fiction. Hello, I'm your host Ruth McPhee and I'm here of course with the delightful Chris Rogers.
1: Hello.
0: Uh, and that's it, just us, just us two. We've got a very local story today. It's the story of a murder that took place in Cambridge in 1921 and it took place on King Street in the city centre, which if you know Cambridge, you'll probably know about King Street. It's not, you know, right in the middle, but it's basically in the middle. Would you call that a fair assessment? You're just
1: staring at me. Yeah, I suppose so. I was just thinking how really it's a little bit down at heel, isn't it, compared to the real middle of Cambridge?
0: Maybe, yes. I mean, it's one end you've got, is it Jesus College at one end? Yeah. But then you get away and it's it's more sort of towny. Well, we'll hear about how down at heel it perhaps used to be. And, you know, it's great though. It's great. Good old King Street. So this is a good story. Sad, of course, because a murder is involved. Always very sad, but interesting as well to think of a location that some of us know so well being the scene for a terrible crime. Now, I discovered this murder on a brilliant website which is called Capturing Cambridge. And it's an online resource which basically looks at loads of different things in the history of Cambridge. And it's kind of, you can search via a map. So you can search different streets and see what's happened there over the years, or you can search. For themes i of course immediately murder crime leprosy that kind of thing <laughs> but you know you can oh yes
1: the old leprosy theme <laughs>
0: the old famous leprosy theme but you can just search for you know world war ii and see some things that happened in the city during world war Two, or you you know all kinds of stuff anyway it's brilliant so i recommend you have a look it's absolutely a wormhole though once i went on there started going then i was just every single address i've ever lived at in cambridge oh what happened there Marshall Road, unexploded bomb. Very exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I I highly recommend it. And it uses loads of archival material and things like old newspaper stories, records to do with ancestry, lineage, that kind of thing, to map out a history of the city. Brilliant.
1: Almost like what the internet was designed for. Oh,
0: I know. Almost like the internet has come to good after all these years. (laughs) After all these years of bloody making Jeff Bezos a fucking multi, multi multi-billionaire, at last, capturing Cambridge has brought some good into the world. <laughs> so I've um I've drawn a bit on that. I've kind of used that as a starting point to look at old newspaper stories and materials. And also a book called Cambridgeshire Murders by Alison Bruce. <laughs> Meesh. I well, you'd think so. And she talks extensively about this particular crime. Now, King Street what do we know about King Street?
1: It used to be where all the record shops were.
0: Oh, well, that's true. Not in 1921, but in <laughs> no, in, <laughs> in, the, the in the late 90s. Lots of independent record stores yeah. w- were there, which are all sadly gone Parrot, now. Parrot. There
1: used to be two parrots, I think, didn't there? Greedy. Unicorn. Oh, don't uh, remember unicorn. Garon Records and Books. That was mostly jazz. Streetwise. Mostly, Streetwise uh, music. music.
0: Yeah, it did used to have a lot of independent record stores, but yes, all gone now. It's also very famous for having rather a lot of pubs. And that's still the case, although perhaps not quite as many as it once had. And this inspires our drinks for tonight, because there used to be something called the King Street Run. There is still something called the King Street Run. Now it's the name of a pub. But what do you know about the King Street Run, Chris?
1: Are you saying then that the King Street Run as a thing, i.e. not a pub, doesn't happen anymore?
0: It, well, not at the moment. Oh well, no, evidently not at the moment. <laughs> uh, I think it still does, but I don't think on such a scale as I mean, it used
1: to. So the King Street run is working your way down the pubs of King Street, having mm-hmm. a pint in each? Yes. And trying to do it in the quickest possible time you can.
0: And not go to the toilet.
1: <laughs> and that's key, is it?
0: <laughs> it's key, because... For either
1: top end or bottom end. <laughs>
0: Exactly, no throwing up, no having a wee, because the story goes, the local story goes that in the fifties, nineteen fifties, some medical students—always <laughs> were... medical students—oh, <laughs> I it? know they get up to so many, uh, so many scrapes. Were having a debate about the capacity of the human bladder. How many pints could the human bladder hold before it gave way? So <laughs> there was <laughs> there was some debate well or before you have to relieve yourself oh okay okay you know not before it bursts not and fills, failure in dramatic fills fashion. your insides with urine that would be awful um <laughs> no <laughs> oh dear no they were having a debate how you know and it's, somehow it came up oh i reckon someone was like i bet i could drink all down the length of king street pint in every pub my bladder can take it
1: is it the case that the quicker you do it the more chance you've got of your bladder not giving away.
0: Maybe, like in competitive eating, you just have to put it yeah. all in really quickly before your body as Realises out what you've done. Before your body works out something's gone wrong inside.
1: How long does it take liquid to reach the bladder from the mouth? Um, it passes through the stomach first, right?
0: Yeah, it must. There's and then not there's some kind pipe? of processing
1: that goes on before it. All I can say
0: is when I drink a cup of tea, that's coming out quickly. No, but tea's a diuretic. It's coming out quickly. <laughs> And we all know the rule about pints: as long as you don't break the seal, you'll be okay. That's
1: true. Yeah. That's
0: what we all used to say when we were young, drinking pints. Once you've made your first trip to the toilet, That's all it. bets are you off after the long that. Haul. Exactly. So the idea was, yeah, you have to go down these pubs, start at one end of King Street at what is called the Saint Radigand now, smallest pub in Cambridge, and work your way towards the town end, having a drink in each pub. And at one point there, I believe, were as many as 12 pubs.
1: How many are there now?
0: I think there's about five now.
1: I was going to try and count them all, but it's not yeah. boring.
0: Yeah, probably a bit boring for non-Cambridge-based listeners. But if you live in Cambridge, why not try counting them in your head at home? Count them now.
1: This isn't lockdown learning. <laughs>
0: pub-based learning but yeah so it was quite a challenge I don't think there were quite as many as 12 in the 50s when the challenge began but at some point in the intervening years there's definitely there's a lot of pubs it's really not a very long street as well I just want to make that clear it's what a couple of hundred meters yeah yeah it's not long so they really cram those pubs in we're not going to drink 12 pints that would be ludicrous (laughs) Uh, And I certainly would have some bladder issues if we were to (laughs) drink 12 pints in a row. So, but what we are going to (laughs) do... Not least. (laughs) Not not least bladder issues. Yeah. What we are going to do, though, is we've got a selection of beers and we're just going to, like, drink our way through them. (laughs) And that's our King Street Run. We've gone vaguely themed. Like, I remember in the King Street Run, the pub, they always used to have Doom Bar. So we're going to start with Doom Bar. Shall I pour? Yeah, sure. Listen to that fizz, listen to that fizz, my friends. Ooh, ooh, I miss going to the pub. Ooh, we'll just have to pretend with these these uh, bottle bottle pints. Okay, let's start our Dean Bar, and I can start to tell you the story. So, look, the King Street Run pub crawl—it's got nothing to do with this murder. It merely happened on the same place where later a pub crawl would take place. The tragic victim in this case. Was a woman called Alice Maud Lawn. And Alice Maud Lawn, I'll just call her Alice from now on, ran a shop on King Street.
1: Was it a record shop?
0: No, it was a general store. She sold things like dairy products, bread, tobacco seems to feature quite heavily. <laughs> um, the kinds of things you would just, you know, pop in, you know, get some eggs, get a loaf, maybe a paper. Could have had some papers, don't know. And she ran at this shop on King Street in the building that now houses a kebab shop, the Super Kebab House. (laughs) And the Super Kebab House slash Alice Lawn's uh, general store (laughs) is actually next door to one of the pubs, uh, now the Champion of the Thames, uh, just separated by a little alleyway. So if you know King Street, you can try and imagine where that is. Alice had been managing the shop for 21 years. She was early 50s, so she'd been in the store, general store business for a long time. Uh, She lived above the shop with her cat. Oh,
1: that's nice.
0: Delightful. Isn't that nice? So Alice was held in quite high regard by the locals of the street. Uh, You know, she was well respected, but she was known to be kind of quiet. You know, she'd have a chat with you. If you went in, but she wasn't, uh, you know, shouting and bombastic and racing up and down the road. And she had a lot of, um, she knew her neighbours, so it was quite, um, nowadays, I guess it's it's mainly businesses, but it's, you know, the flats are probably rented mm. out to students and stuff. In those days, it was much more of a kind of local community right. of the street. Her brother, Horace, also lived on King Street opposite with his family, Horace Lawn. The Lawns were all from Cambridge. They'd all been there for many years, so her family had been in the area for a long time. Alice had this nice, nice little store. She had two storeys of living quarters above. But, well, not but. It turned out it was a but, but it could have been nice. So she had this little alleyway that went from King Street down the side of her shop, and at the back of her store, it backed onto what's called Christpiece. piece Christ Pieces I think they used to call it, which is like a green, like a park area basically.
1: By the bus station.
0: By the bus station, not then of course. Quite a spot for teenage drinking when I was a youth, <laughs> Christ Peace. You didn't go up in Cambridge. It's so not very didn't. out of the way, is it? The point wasn't to be out of the way. No? I don't really know what the point was.
1: My teenage drinking was all in fields, out the way of places, well, so you wouldn't accidentally bump into a parent while you were in We didn't imbibing. have a field.
0: So... Her her property had a little garden and then that backed onto this kind of green park area. Cambridge has been known as a market town uh, since the Middle Ages. And that's kind of even before the Cambridge University set up. The market town predates that. It was already here. Uh, So there was, of course, the settlement was here. Trading people from all the farmlands. The fens would come to market. Trading uh,
1: people?
0: (laughs) Well, no, eels. (laughs) predominantly it was eels no it was you know yeah. usual farm stuff and there's a market square in the center of the city that's still there that's still trading just about it's long been a hub for commerce and community and to some extent it still is today but what's less well known is that there also used to be a market for not certainly that those many hundreds of years but at the time of alice lawn's murder there was also a market held on king street oh on Wednesdays. So that was a smaller market, but it was always very busy. It would a street bring. Market. Yeah, like a street market. It would bring a lot of people to the area. Bustling, busy Wednesday morning. Now, Alice was not wild about this because she thought that the market brought in disreputable <laughs> types from as far away as London. Oof. And it brought, you know, she was happy with her local regular customers. She just didn't like the competition. Well, maybe, maybe. And she also used to be, this is all from, you know, neighbours spoke about it afterwards. She was quite wary about security because of the fact that her shop backed onto this kind of green. She had this alleyway that would have been quite a dark, murky alleyway. Still is. Still is a bit dark and murky that ran between King Street and Christ Peace. So she was very security conscious and she was known to be a bit... Bit wary about the types of people that would come, not just to Market Wednesday, but also they used to have bands that would play on Christ's peace and that brought a lot of carousing, a lot of <laughs> drinking, uh, and again, a lot of kind of strangers would would come to the area. And she was, would often talk to her regulars about how she was a bit anxious about it.
1: Sounds like Woodstock
0: <laughs> on a much much tinier scale, <laughs> one thousandth of the size of Woodstock. I quite like the idea of having bands playing on Christ's
1: <laughs> Presumably um, it was like brass bands at the bandstand type. Yeah,
0: race. I think so. But yeah, it was, you know, it was a busy time and she she would always make sure. So it was known to be very security conscious, lock her back door very carefully. Didn't like the out of towners, a bit worried about the kind of people that were, that were coming into Cambridge and King Street for these events. Foreigners. Well, certainly non-Cambridges. Yeah, I mean,
1: it's bad enough, isn't it?
0: Non-Fenlanders. It seems like it was the London types in particular that she was concerned about. Those, yeah, big city types. Unfortunately for Alice, her fears were proved correct. The sad events took place on Market Day, Wednesday the 27th of July, 1921. First, something was noticed to be amiss around 11am. A regular customer, attempting to buy some tobacco, spotted that the shop was closed. He thought, well, it's a bit unusual, but she does sometimes pop out, so maybe she's gone to get some supplies or whatever. So he thought, probably nothing, I'll come back later for my tobacco. After lunch, however, the shop was still closed. He thought, this isn't like Alice, not to leave the shop unattended all day, locked up so that no customers can get in. He went across the road to the house of Horace Lawn. Horace was at work, but he was able to let Alice's sister-in-law know that Alice wasn't at the shop, and he was a little getting a little bit worried.
1: Because the sister-in-law hadn't spotted. The shop across the road.
0: Well, I don't think they were directly opposite. Oh, okay. Plus, market
1: day's going on. Oh, yeah, all right.
0: You don't know what she can see and what she can't see. She's probably busy with her own shit. She's not just peeping out of the curtains all day. Oh, what's Alice doing?
1: If you're the sister-in-law or the kind of person who doesn't like foreign types, you are just peeping out the curtains all the time.
0: Can I just say, I don't think you've fairly characterised Alice about not liking foreign types. Come she on, was in
1: just... the 1920s, people from London, that basically equates to foreign She
0: types. was just anxious about security. Okay. A woman on her own in the house. She wasn't sure what would happen. And she was right to be worried. The sister-in-law agreed, actually, this is really unusual. We should try and find out what's happening. So she contacted Horace. He was called in, got the spare keys, opened up the shop. A terrible sight greeted his eyes and that of a neighbour who had come in for moral support. There were signs of disturbance in the shop. And Alice, poor Alice, Lay dead at the foot of the stairs in a pool of blood. It was evident she had been deceased for some hours already. Of course the police were summoned immediately. Constable Alfred Flint was first on the scene. What do you think? Solid name. Solid, I know, that's such a good policeman's name, Alfred Flint. I tried to find out more about Alfred, but I couldn't.
1: Uh, you wanted to find the uh, famous case that he cracked yes. later in his career. Yes, exactly. <laughs> or
0: earlier, or, you know, just anything. Just anything about Alfred Flint, but I couldn't find much. But it is, is, he, is he close to retirement solid. age? Just trying to predict where this is going? <laughs> no, because he's no. only a constable. Okay, So he's he's probably... You just think that because he's called Alfred. But in those days, young <laughs> people were called Alfred. <laughs> it's back, though. The youngsters are back on the Alfreds, aren't they? So Alfred Flint turns up and he performs an initial search of the premises. Firstly, of course, checking that nobody else was still at the property. Had to check shop level and the two domestic levels. Nobody was found. They did a bit of an examination of the body, of course, trying not to disturb it too much before the coroner could get there. It revealed that poor Alice's head had been bashed in, uh. seemingly with a blunt instrument of some sort. Gosh. Could be. A gag was found tied around her neck and shoved into her mouth. And money was missing from the till. Motive. Yes, precisely motive. Although money was missing from the till, but money that Alice kept upstairs, hidden in her in her own quarters, was still there, and actually quite a substantial amount mm. that whoever it was had missed. They'd just gone for the till and not got much because the shop hadn't been open long. Of course, that day. So they quickly surmised that Alice had probably disturbed a burglar at work and a struggle had ensued. Alice had come off worst and the assailant had left her for dead. Pointless. A pointless, stupid crime. Constable Flint made a couple of interesting discoveries as he searched the house. A bowl in the scullery sink which contained water that had been dyed red and a cloth was placed nearby also covered with red stains i
1: thought you were just doing like a strange old euphemism for blood
0: <laughs> <laughs> God. Of Red water. that's what a salad fingers says <laughs> i like it when the red water comes out uh i thought of salad fingers as i said it and i was like i phrased this very strangely but it wasn't you know it wasn't a bowl of blood no and it was a bowl of water but the water was red dyed red. This stained cloth was nearby and also in a cupboard under the sink in the scullery he discovered a small chopper or axe with a wooden handle and the handle had a big damp patch on it as if it had recently been cleaned. It was later of course discovered that the handle of the chopper matched the indentations in Alice's skull. The murder weapon had been found and actually later the chopper was identified as one that Alice had kept in the house herself for doing sort of small firewood. chopping Chop firewood but also perhaps she thought as a defensive weapon in the horrible irony of, right. of these sorts of things is that actually it's going to get used on you unless you really know what you're doing maybe don't keep a chopper in the house how are you getting on with your dean bar
1: i'm ready for another one
0: next we have another sharps it is atlantic pale ale tropical and refreshing it says just the thing for hearing about a gruesome coroner's report.
1: I suppose when you're sick, uh, when you've been drinking, li- liquid comes up, doesn't it?
0: You... So the liquid can't
1: go straight to your bladder.
0: <laughs> well, it lingers in the in the stomach for a yeah. short time, but the more you drink, the quicker it gets pushed down. I suppose so. Don't you think? Look, I've researched about a murder. I didn't expect to have to actually research about bladders. Oh, that's nice. It is tropical and refreshing. Mm. I'll give them that.
1: I think I had a pint of this last time we were in the King Street run. Did well, you? We waiting to play the quizzer
0: delicious oh yeah the one of the very good things about the king street run the old quiz machine where you do all the questions jab at the screen
1: win three pounds on bullseye
0: i love it hangman's haunted house grabbed by the ghoulies oh i love those quiz machines my dream is to have one of them in my house But I'm not sure how the dream can be realised.
1: No, you'd have to invite all of your friends round to play it just to To get their money. Yeah. Yeah. And they'd soon get hmm. wise to your schemes.
0: Or put it so that it gave you more for like ten P so that a game didn't cost fifty P. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, your base level was lower. Anyway, I'd love one of them. The King Street one used to have one, probably still does.
1: I just imagine the landlord on his own. Just playing the quiz machine. That's what
0: I'd be bloody doing all day on the quiz machine. Because the pounds are probably all still in there from before. You could probably play it so many times that you learned all the answers.
1: Put yourself on furlough and then <laughs> uh, make your wages back up from the uh, quiz machine.
0: God, I would definitely be doing that. Oh, I hope he's doing key. that. <laughs> okay, are you ready for some horrible findings from the coroner? Mm. Brace yourselves. So the coroner examined her body briefly at the site and then, of course, it was taken to be properly looked at elsewhere. The coroner identified several wounds to the front and back of of the scalp many of the wounds were gashes right down to the bone so right down to reveal her skull and one of the strikes had fractured her skull it had been bludgeoned with such force it was a very vicious and violent attack her left hand also bore bruising and contusions defensive wounds the classic defensive wounds and she had tried to ward off her attacker the coroner gave his opinion that the first blow likely to the forehead where there was a two inch gash evident the first blow would have stunned her and the second blow would likely have knocked her out but not for that long was his opinion so she would have been knocked out for a short time it then seemed to him that an interval passed before the rest of the blows which were to the back of her head. He suggested that these had probably been administered as she started to come around and the burglar had realised that she was waking up and had gone in for the second attack. The gag had been shoved so forcefully into her mouth that one of her teeth had broken and her tongue had lacerations likely caused by her own teeth. Horrible. Mm. Um, The cause of death was haemorrhage to the brain from the repeated smashings um i'm going
1: to suggest that you probably you don't gag someone if you're just going to kill them straight out do you so that probably adds credence to the idea that she was knocked unconscious
0: yeah so it paints a very grisly picture but it does as you say it does sort of have a narrative to it so the suggestion seems to be and this is the sort of the idea that they went with was that She had come in and obviously disturbed somebody. Maybe she grabbed the axe and they managed to wrestle it off her. Maybe they found the axe first. She had initially been hit to the front of the head, so attacked, you know, in the struggle. That had been enough to knock her out. The assailant had then gagged her in the hope that that would be enough. But she'd started to come around. Maybe she started to make some noises, and they then went in for the second attack, and that was what had ended up killing her. I think you're right. I think it suggests they hadn't gone in with the intention of murder. They'd Mm. gone in to do some thieving, and then it had gone horribly wrong. And the fact that the murder weapon was something that was from her property...
1: Lack of premeditation.
0: Exactly. They hadn't brought something with them to use. They just grabbed something that they could find. So it's a, a very grisly picture of a really unpleasant death. Unfortunately, not that quick a death, quite a horrible death. Alice. The violence and the pointlessness of the attack for really what was a very small amount of money shocked the people of Cambridge. And also the case was reported locally, but also across the country. Cambridge, I mean, of course, we've had our share of crimes, but it's never been a particularly violent city. It's a small town. And something like this was really very infrequent so, you know, in a way, when you look back at murders in Cambridge, there's a few that have received a huge amount of attention, but because they are unusual. And this one was certainly shocking in the, the victim, who was this a woman who was really just completely innocent and just a stupid, pointless horror. Now, the police carried out an awful lot of interviews, of course, because it was market day. There were loads of people around. So they had a lot of people to try and interview. So transient
1: though. How did they catch them all before they went back from wherever they've come? Well,
0: the body was, I should have said, sorry, the body was discovered at about three o'clock when Horace Lawn went in. So there were still, a lot of people were still there. Right. And they, of course, canvassed all the regulars, but they also just sort of grabbed who they could on the street. Of course, when Alfred Flint appeared, the ripples, the murmurs went through the street at once. Something's gone wrong. Where's Alice? Poor Alice. So it became quite widespread quite quickly. So I'm sure a lot of people had something to say that they felt they had some useful information that could assist as we shall see interviews with witnesses in conjunction with the coroner's findings which suggested that Alice had been dead probably since the late morning based on the state of the blood the rigor mortis etc the time of death was established as being about 11 to 1130 that morning. So they found the body around three, so they found it a few hours later. There's some good stuff now about timelines. So you know if you're investigating a murder on the T V shows, they always do their timelines. So you're like, you must establish the timeline. That's right. absolutely crucial. That's murder one oh one. Get your timeline sorted. So they started to establish their timeline. A baker had dropped off his usual bread delivery to the shop at about 10.45.
1: Still alive at that point.
0: Alice was there. She took the bread, gave him his money. A pair of sisters confirmed that they had purchased something from the shop around 11. Alice was there. The shop was open. We know that sometime soon after that, the tobacco buying regular had come to the shop only to find it closed. Mm. So 11 o'clock-ish, the girls reckon they went in. Shortly after 11, the shop was shut. Small window. Small window. Another neighbour called Rose Rolfe, who was passing down the little alley next to the shop, said she heard an unusual noise sometime around 11.30, although she couldn't be absolutely precise. She said, I heard a little muffled noise of some description, a sort of dull noise. I thought it was a child crying. It was a quiet noise. Horrible, isn't That's it? It was like a
1: whimpering last whimper.
0: Yeah, a very horrible, chilling Chilling testimony there from Rose Rolfe. And there was also a 13-year-old called Jack, Jack Cornwall, who proved important. He said... Not information about Alice's whereabouts, but he said he'd seen a man going through the back gate of Alice's property. And he said he was much more sketchy on times because he's a small boy. But he says he thought that was sometime between eleven and twelve. Right. He saw he saw this guy going into the back gate, and he said he remembered because he. This is absolutely classic as well. He saw the man going in, and he was like, "Oh, I lost a ball in there. I kicked a ball in this there. This is my opportunity to get in exactly. So he he was going to go in. And then he was like, "Oh, the gate's shut again. I can't get in and get my ball." So that had stuck it in his mind. He'd remembered that he'd seen someone go. Was he in. a
1: Christ pieces teenage drinker? Was he a, a reliable? <laughs> oh,
0: redness? there's no uh, info on Jack Cornwall's reliability. <laughs> I see no reason that we might doubt him, though. Well, actually. I say that there's some very unreliable witnesses coming up and much of this information about this kind of timeline witness reports came out at the inquest and was subsequently all written up in great detail in the papers of the time eager to record everything. This is
1: Flint's fastidious work that's provided all of this information. I guess so.
0: Flint's good canvassing. Flint's good recording of of Mm. times and statements and things. Okay, so much of the information came out at the inquest, which commenced a few days after the death and was widely reported locally and nationally. So a clear picture was emerging about when and how Alice had met her unhappy end. But at this point, it really didn't seem like the police had anything to go on. There was no sort of obvious candidate for the crime the motive was burglary which uh, on market day which you know obviously means it's not somebody that's necessarily even knows her it just be an opportunistic attack or it's an opportunistic bold theft. Though,
1: isn't it if you know market day it's a busy day it's 11 o'clock in the morning yeah you're just going to go in a shop and steal the money
0: well i think what happened and what is the impression i get is that she had was in the habit of sometimes closing up very briefly to pop you know up the road to get some change or something so she had probably locked up the shop. Someone had seen the shop's empty. She's not in there. I'm going to pop oh, round the okay. back, down this little alleyway to uh, get in. And then she'd come back right. and obviously discovered them. So it wasn't that they like barged into the open shop to do the theft. She had left for something, come back in and, and come upon them. So very opportunistic, which meant it's very hard to pin that down onto a suspect. Mm. So the police were, were sort of desperately trying to find some leads. They called in the help of Scotland Yard, who were probably much more used to investigating this sort of yeah. thing.
1: <laughs> Ten a penny in London.
0: Exactly. For them, they were like, oh, this old shit. Women bludgeoned to death for a few bob. Oh, we deal with yeah. this thing five times a week. So two of five times two an
1: of, hour, I'd have thought.
0: Two of Scotland Yard's, I'd say, finest. They probably weren't the finest, <laughs> were they? Two two of Scotland Yard's uh, moderate, average men were brought in to assist the investigation. So a couple of theories were being explored, both of which sound pretty bloody spurious <laughs> to our modern ears, and frankly, I think reflect the prejudices of the time more than anything else. They both came to nothing.
1: Is one of them that she ran a knocking shop?
0: (laughs) No. No. No one would say such a thing about Alice. She was well respected. I was just
1: trying to imagine what could be a bad stereotypical theory about why she might have died.
0: Well, I'll tell you. So the first theory was based on the testimony of a gardener who worked on Christ's Peace and he reported that he had seen someone counting money at the back of the property on the afternoon of Wednesday the 27th. He said the man was of Jewish appearance and had a dark complexion. And he was not a local man, although the gardener had seen him before in market days.
1: This sounds like the uh, classic Jack the Ripper. (laughs) It was the Jews.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, so, exactly. So that's, I mean, come on. That didn't go anywhere because nonsense so yes as i say i think just kind of reflective of prejudices of the time and the other thing which you know they really must have been grasping at straws so they were kind of like oh is are there any you know did alice have any men in her life was there anyone that she knew who was a bit strange or that could have possibly been involved with something and it transpired that alice had had a lodger and the lodger had stayed with her for a while but then had suffered a mental breakdown and had left Alice's house after being admitted to Fullborn Mental oh. Institution, which is still operational. But that was the the kind of local asylum, if you like. So I bet from... it was a lot
1: more of an asylum in those days than it is now. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's an absolutely beautiful old building. It's one of those amazing old asylum buildings. I'm always amazed that developers haven't managed to get their hands on it. I'm sure they've tried. So she'd had this lodger who'd had a, a nervous breakdown, basically. So they were like, oh, do you think he could have had something to do with it? Is this a lead we should be following? But he hadn't lived with her for two years. This had been two years earlier.
1: And well, you've got to cover all your possibilities.
0: I suppose, but to me, you know, this it, is... Consider it
1: quickly, strike it off.
0: This is straw grasping, if you ask me. Classic straw grasping, and I think having a um a nervous breakdown. Isn't the same as bludgeoning a woman to death.
1: No, sure. You
0: know, I don't think the link. But no,
1: presumably, the fact that he'd had a nervous breakdown was not the thing that made them suspicious that he might be involved. In it, the was crime. it was, was had that he been was had been the was lodger. A lodger and had known the place. And had known you her. could
0: argue, though, maybe if if it was a lodger, he might have known about the money upstairs. Maybe and made a bit of a better job of the burglary. Anyway, as I say, these all came to nothing. Meanwhile, as the investigation went on, Alice's funeral was held, attended by around one thousand people, including family members from Cambridge and further afield, friends and well wishers, and I bet some gorpers. Oh yeah, because he's got a thousand friends.
1: It's a nice day out, isn't it?
0: With the best will in the world, I don't think Alice had a thousand friends and family. Did they members. parade
1: her through the streets of Cambridge.
0: No, she no. wasn't the Pope <laughs> or a dying Regent, but yeah, it was it was a you know a, it was big news. So I think a lot of people came to, as I say, maybe make their uh, pretend they
1: were paying their respects, but in reality, could be gawking. It's like uh, Princess Di. <laughs>
0: And Alice was buried in Mill Road Cemetery in Cambridge, Oh yeah, which is a interesting old cemetery. I'm going to drink the rest of this because I think we need to get on with our pub crawl. Ah, okay, that one's gone in. What's next? Wolfrock. Right. Wolfrock. Wolfrock seems like just the kind of thing a disreputable Christ peace goer would drink. Yeah, Chris has really put quite a lot of um, foam on these. Could you hear him slurping? He was trying to slurp his foam off. I'll try. No, isn't it Audio Sexy Magic or something? <laughs> What's it called? ASMR. ASM Audio Sexy Magic. Ah, <laughs> uh, Ruth. <laughs> Audio. Audio Sexy Magic. No. <laughs> Here it comes. Mm. My phone's gone. That was just beer. We'll do the King Street run when we're allowed out again. It can be our celebratory the pubs are open we're allowed to do the King Street run
1: finally I will learn the capacity of my bladder
0: but no I'm going to go to the toilet I don't hold to this I'm fine I'm fine on the no vomiting rule but I'm not happy about the no no weeing rule
1: I reckon if there's only five pubs is there only five pubs on King Street now I reckon I could do five pints without a wee
0: I think you could but I don't think I could I think I could do ooh I could do three but I wouldn't be happy (laughs) And then it would really be desperate times. (laughs) Also, as soon as you went out into the cold, that's going to hit your bladder.
1: Yeah, do it in the summer. Well, it's going to be the summer before we can go to the pub, isn't it?
0: Probably. Are you ready for some news? Yeah. It's the 5th of August, just a couple of weeks after the murder. Yeah. A breakthrough, or so it seemed. A man identifying himself as Jack Varden handed himself in to Tottenham Court Road police station Hmm saying that it was he who had committed the Cambridge murder.
1: The Cambridge murder?
0: The Cambridge murder. Well, at the time, it's all anyone was talking of, even in Tottenham Court Road. (laughs) So, hooray, thought the police. We've got a good lead here. He was quickly interviewed, but all too quickly it became apparent he had not done the murder. Oh. This Jack Varden, they interviewed him and it turned out he actually really didn't know very much about the murder... The confession was a hoax. Indeed, the fellow soon admitted so. His real name was Ernest Shaw Watson, and he'd never even been to Cambridge.
1: What a chancer.
0: Well, it's quite sad. He'd handed himself in in the hopes of getting some food and shelter, Mm. just even for a couple of nights. Did he manage that? Well, I don't think maybe one night, but as soon as they interviewed him, they thought, actually, he's not been to Cambridge, he doesn't know. And he'd just read about the murder in the London papers and thought, oh, I'll have a go. So very exciting for a short time Mm. then. Got
1: the brakes for everybody, hopefully.
0: Absolute disappointment. Meanwhile, though, the police had been continuing canvassing, getting more witness statements... Following up just a few tiny shreds that could be leads.
1: So is it this is Flint working in collaboration with the Scotland Yard guys? Or is it like in the films when the FBI come in and local law enforcement are bitter and resentful?
0: I don't think so, and to be honest, I don't know if Flint's even on the case anymore. Well he is bitter and resentful then. (laughs) I only know that Flint was the first man at the scene. Um. But I don't know if he got assigned the case. It probably went to some higher ups. Scotland Yard came in. It was just a plod.
1: Took all the glory.
0: A plod on the beat with the best name. You don't get promoted because you've got a good policeman's name, do you? (laughs) It just so happens on the TV that they've all got good names. But that's, you know, that's just coincidence.
1: Although that's somebody very specifically thinking, what's a good name for a good policeman? Sure.
0: Jane Tennyson. Jack Frost.
1: No, Jack Frost is a shit name. (laughs) Such a stupid name.
0: I don't know why he came into my head. all the possible brilliant tv detectives Jim Bergerac that's a good name Jim Bergerac oh that's a terrible name <laughs> I'm saying I'm not saying I don't like Bergerac I like Bergerac but it's a bad name oh okay so they'd they'd got a few um threads of a lead one of which concerned a man who had traded with a friend his coat he said I need to trade this coat
1: blood-stained coat
0: <laughs> well the the coat did have some stains on it <laughs> so that was suspicious so they they found uh, hang
1: on how did that come to light
0: i think actually that the, the person who'd done the coat trade was like mm, i think people were coming forward wanting to to help so it turned out that the stains on the coat were merely paint however Once they'd started to question this guy, they were like, actually, a lot of things don't add up about his story.
1: Coat Coat Trader or Coat Tradie?
0: Coat Trader. A lot of things don't add up about his tale. And they started to investigate a little bit more about him. This was all going on. The next big news came on Friday the 19th of August, some three weeks after the murder. An arrest! The papers were full of it! The police had arrested a man in his early twenties, twenty-three. Most reports say one says twenty-six, but that's an outlier. They'd arrested this man, Thomas Clanwaring. <laughs> Clanwaring had been interviewed by police a number of times in respect to the stained coat. Some witnesses put him on King Street on the morning of the murder. Well,
1: hang on, what relation had he got to the stained coat?
0: He was the trader. Oh,
1: okay, all right.
0: He was the trader. It was he who had had the stained coat, right, okay. tried to offload it onto another man. Right. As a trade. I see. But who would trade a stained coat? Stupid. So he was interviewed a few times because they they kind of thought he might be a person of interest. And he kept changing his story. And they were like, this is not good. Mm. Very suspicious. A couple of witnesses could put him on King Street on the day of the crime, around the time of the crime. And they started to look into his background. He'd only arrived in the city a few days before the murder. Prior to that... He had first been incarcerated in Bedford for stealing five bicycles.
1: That's more of a Cambridge crime.
0: He'd then, on his release, he'd had to pay a a penalty and he'd been released from Bedford jail. He'd then gone to Baldock, nearby Baldock, where he spent, this is very odd, this is a strange thing, he'd spent a few days in Baldock pretending to be mute and deaf, stumbling around, only then to... Announced he could speak. He could hear. It was a miracle. He tried to sell his story to the local paper.
1: The Bulldog Inquirer.
0: The story of his his years of uh, deafness and and muteness. And yet now he could speak, he could hear, it was a miracle. Um but he got short shrift. He got short shrift for that. And at that point he came to Cambridge. So the police looked into this and they were like, What the actual fuck? This man's a maniac. First, he sell five bicycles.
1: I, I think that's quite an inventive way of trying to get some money. He's like, okay, crime didn't pay. I need to think of something else.
0: <laughs> no, because he was trying to get people to give him money because he was deaf and uh, mute.
1: No, but only like a newspaper.
0: No, but first he was begging. That's he what he that was clear. doing for a few days. Then that wasn't working out. So right. then he was uh, like, oh, maybe okay. I'll do this. Right. Sorry, I didn't make it clear. but
1: I thought he'd gone there with the explicit <sighs> uh, intention of Who knows? Uh, creating a press sensation.
0: Who knows what he'd thought. So the police started to kind of look into this and they found this recently released from prison in Bedford, this nonsense business going on. And they interviewed him a few times. And as I say, he kind of changed his story. Mm. So this was red flag, red flag, red flag. A number of other details also pointed at his guilt, some witness statements, that kind of thing, which we'll come to. And this was enough for them to arrest him. The arrest was made. Thomas Clanwaring was going to be tried for the murder. Of Alice Lorne The trial took place in September Of the same year They got to it quick The prosecution went first As is customary Their case did seem to contain A number of damning If circumstantial pieces of evidence Against the accused Several witnesses testified To seeing Clan Waring on King Street On the day of the murder Around 10.30 And again Between 11.30 and 12 Just leaving a little gap in the middle To do a bit of killing So the police thought Although, in between, he had been spotted at the Rose and Crown pub. Huh. The Rose and Crown pub is not on King Street. It's, I'd say, a 20-minute walk.
1: Is that the one on uh, Elizabeth Way?
0: Yeah, and now it's an estate agent. Mm. So many pubs in Cambridge have just... Uh, they're done for, I'm afraid. Even before COVID, so he'd been spotted at the Rosen Crown pub in between those times. But the police were like this, st- you know. He basically went in there, tried to sell a watch, downed a pint, and left again. So they were like, he he could have made it back. He tried to sell his wristwatch to a local in the Rosen Crown, saying he was desperate for money. Again, suspicious. Mm. A man who is desperate for money would he break into a shop to steal some? This is what the prosecution
1: thought. But like you say, all the evidence so far. Circumstantial. There must be one killer thing up their sleeve that you've yet to tell me. You reckon? Well, let's you bring a prosecution based on what you told me so let's far. Let's
0: hear some more, shall we?
1: Sold a mouldy coat, trying to sell a watch, <laughs> was in the right area.
0: His landlady gave testimony. And his landlady said that he'd come back to the house about three o'clock, declaring an old lady has been murdered. But, of course...
1: At that stage, nobody knew.
0: Alice had not been discovered until shortly after three o'clock.
1: That's foolish.
0: And the discovery of the body was even a little after that. They tried to keep a lid on it. I mean, it got out quickly. But mm. So the police said, the prosecution argued, how on earth could he have known this if it was not he who had done the crime?
1: Could the landlady be sure of her timings?
0: A good question.
1: If I was cross-examining, that's where I'd go.
0: You'd say... But you are it... you not
1: a bit confused?
0: Had you had anything to drink that afternoon, Mrs Landlady? <laughs> how
1: could you be so sure it was three o'clock? That's
0: exactly the kind of thing they said. Yeah. Did you have a... A little glass of wine with lunch that day. Perhaps had you snoozed off? That would be my problem in a trial. I've usually
1: sneezed off. Been on the sherry.
0: (laughs) I've never been on the sherry. But the landlady could have been. But they thought that that's a a knockout blow almost. Just with all this other stuff. Furthermore, in his possession had been found a blue bank bag from Lloyd's Bank. The same exact style of bag as several that had been discovered in Alice's shop.
1: It was a bit more damning.
0: Upon questioned about where he had got the bag, first he said he'd picked it up at some kind of race course thing. Then he said, oh, no, I found it here. So his story, again, he couldn't give a consistent story about where he'd got this bag from. So, of course, they thought he's had the money away in that blue banking bag. The prosecution also brought a couple of other witnesses to the stand, prisoners who'd been in jail with Clan Waring while he was detained between oh, the arrest and the he'd trial. Who he confessed to. Well, so they asserted, Chris. So they asserted. They said while he had not confessed outright, he had basically heavily implied that he had done the killing even going so far as to saying i will hang for it and doing like a jolly
1: uh i'm strangling
0: myself and he said something like oh they'll get me for it and there's no one else is to blame or he basically they testified that he'd mm. he'd basically confessed but what do we think about the testimony of joe house well exactly witnesses
1: they are only after really something to lighten their sentence i expect
0: or just to fucking break up the boredom that's what lockdown's like i can see how you might end up making a wild oh story God. about how someone had done a murder it's very boring every day's the same i won't accuse you of a crime don't worry
1: i'm making sure i've got my alibi
0: all <laughs> i'm your alibi there's no one else to see you maybe if lockdown goes on till july
1: then i'll do a crime
0: then we'll start talking about made up crimes to me i'll tell you what it sounds like clan wearing he talked and talked and talked he talked to the police, he talked to everyone, he talked to his fellow inmates. A lot of what came out of his mouth was nonsense. Mm. It really sounds that way. We know that he made up this nonsense story about being deaf and mute. Yeah. All his stories to the police were completely inconsistent. He comes across as perhaps, let's say, not the sharpest tool in the box. Just talking, 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 talking. But can doing, you... doing
1: comedy, Noose strangling (laughs) routines in prison.
0: Just an idiot. Just
1: know your audience.
0: Oh, he'd misjudged it entirely. So a lot of, you know, a lot of the stuff that came out was definitely lies because everything he said didn't match anything else he'd said. Who knows if there was any truth? It was very hard to determine. Okay, so now, he did have a defence lawyer. Right. And the defence lawyer had been hired for him by an anonymous, not to the lawyer but to the papers, an anonymous North Country wealthy lady. Mm. The North Country wealthy lady had read about the arrest of Thomas Clamwaring in the papers and was apparently concerned that he wouldn't get a fair trial. So she had trial by media. Well perhaps so she had put the money up to hire a proper defence lawyer. Astonishing. So he did actually have a defence lawyer, Mr H. O. Carter. Things were difficult for Mr. Carter. He himself described his client as the biggest liar I had ever met. <laughs> Still, Mr. And Carter. And that's coming from a lawyer. Well, exactly. He's met a lot of liars. But I think that reinforces this idea that it was just a stream of this and that. Oh, buy this wristwatch off me. Take my coat. Oh, I've done a murder. Oh, <laughs> You know, that's how I imagine it. just, you know, nonsense. Like the music hall. Exactly. A a, a musical man. So Mr. H.O. Carter, while conceding that his client was a liar, also of course wanted to do his best. And he could see this is all circumstantial evidence. Nothing actually, apart from perhaps the blue bag, nothing concretely links him to the scene. No blood was found on any of his clothing. The... Red stains on the coat turned out to be paint. You know, there was nothing belonging to him found at the the murder scene. All this kind of thing. Yep. Sure, he was at the King Street location, but so Who were. Wasn't? So was everyone, it was market bloody day. market day. So Clanwaring came to the stand himself. He contradicted his own previous testimony several times and the judge actually challenged him about these discrepancies and this is a bit sad. He said the following, Your lordship, I am not a very intelligent man and I hope will you excuse me saying such a thing but I can't penetrate my mind on these actions definitely. Basically he's saying... That saying he can't
1: confirm he did or didn't do it.
0: Well, he when they're like, where were you at this time? Why did you try and oh, say or watch what was he he basically gave lots of different answers and then he just said i'm not very clever But
1: presumably he's he's protesting his innocence yeah
0: Yeah. he's he's saying he's innocent but he's not able to properly account for himself and he says to the judge i'm i haven't recorded these things (laughs) i am too stupid too stupid of course a stupid person can very well do a murder
1: yeah that's not a defense
0: no it's not a defense it's not much left of our story should we have our last drink? We're on the King Street Run. Jam it in your mouth. Okay, the last drink is our Hobgoblin. Now, I requested a Hobgoblin especially because I always remember going to the King Street Run and they had a sign up behind the bar of the Hobgoblin, famous the famous emblem of the beer. And the Hobgoblin was saying, What's the matter, lager boy? Afraid you might taste something. Do you remember that? Yeah, terrible. Because Hobgoblin used to be much stronger, I think.
1: No, I think it was just a general snobbishness about kind of real ale around that time that probably doesn't carry.
0: A I bet that sign's seat. still there. I bet that hobgoblin sign's still up. Anyway, the trial progressed. clamoring's lawyer put up a robust defence. The wealthy lady had hired a good one. He argued, as you have said, that most of the evidence, if not all, is circumstantial at best. At best, and he said, you know. Perhaps we could say the same thing for many if we looked at each person that was found mm. on King Street that day.
1: They've all got their weird foibles.
0: Exactly. Maybe a lot of them have been in jail in Bedford for stealing bicycles. Yeah, this man's <laughs> He didn't say that. So many are watching a park. He absolutely... He was like, you know, who could say that the next person along on the street would not have an equally mm. immoral past and we could also point to him doing a couple of suspicious things that day. And he also had a couple of his own witnesses who were absolutely crucial to the defence. Edith Rayner and Harry Farrington, both of whom worked as bartenders at the Crown pub. Now, the police's story and the prosecution's story had been that he had basically been in and out of the pub.
1: Sold the watch, drank a pint, off he went. Exactly.
0: He didn't sell the watch. He tried to sell the watch. The the story had been he'd got in there shortly before 11, drunk his pint, been out of there shortly after 11, loads of time to get to the shop, do the murder... Rose Rolfe hears the unfortunate dull noise at about 11.30 and then he's back out onto the street. However, each of the bar staff, Edith and Harry from the Rose and Crown, testified that contrary to the statements previously given, Clan Waring had been at the pub between 11 and 11.30 in that gap. Uh, And Harry Farrington said he could be sure of this because he actually finished work at 11 and he had not yet appeared Thomas Clanwaring had not yet appeared right. at the pub and Edith Rayner was working all the morning long and she said actually he was in from 11 to about 11.30 we're
1: talking a.m. here
0: a.m. right
1: okay I was just like he finished work he finished his shift in a pub at 11 a.m.
0: I don't suppose there were licensing laws <laughs> I guess not yeah I did think about this because he could have been doing something like cleaning
1: yeah I suppose I don't
0: know what he was doing or
1: maybe they were doing breakfasts
0: yeah sure the market and day. i don't know when the um 12 till you know no. you can't serve beer till serve alcohol till was it, 12 was it when wartime? yeah this was 20s yeah. the roaring 20s don't you forget yeah right they were probably downing pints at bloody half probably. past nine. Ooh, a pint with your sausages your morning sausages delicious it like was, an airport <laughs> weather spoons <laughs> i love it it was probably quite weak beer so i know i did think the same I was like, bloody Thomas Clanwaring. Also, maybe that's why he can't really account for his actions that day. (laughs) (laughs) was by 11am. In the pub at bloody 11. Anyway, so these two, they gave their testimony. The lawyer, Mr. H.O. Carter, he said, now, let's think about the locations of these places. If Thomas Clanwaring was in the Rosen Crown between 11 and 11.30, he could not possibly have committed the murder. Nope. He could not have got back there in time to do that crime he could not have been the one to do the murder so this was key crucial and they were credible witnesses mm. they had no reason to lie no. they didn't know him
1: they of all people would have been sober yeah probably
0: uh and also i think i mean i'm just projecting but i think things like times that you finish and start work you know for definite don't you Because, you know, someone who's on the street on King Street on Market Day, they could go, exactly, I reckon it was about this time. But if you're like, well, I know my shift finishes at this time and I'm out of there, then you can say that for sure. So it meant that the other statements from some of the other witnesses, you know, he could still have been sighted on King Street at half past 10, he could still have been sighted on King Street shortly after half past 11, but he could not have been in the shop doing the murder at that particular time. The testimony of this pair plus the lack of any evidence beyond the flimsiest of circumstantial evidence, was decisive. In fact, in his summing up, the judge essentially picked holes in the prosecution's case himself.
1: Mm. Criticised the police for even uh, bringing it to this far I He
0: He said, you know, all they've done is to show, here is a man who could possibly have been in the area... But they can't show that he was in the area at this particular time and how many other people could this also be applied mm. to. They have not proved at all that he was the one who was there and that he was the one who did the crime. He basically dismissed the testimony of the other jail inmates. It was like, well, that doesn't show know, you either. anything He didn't confess at all, actually. All he did was talk about the fact that he was being tried. He didn't actually give a confession. Plus, can we take the word of these inmates? And he, yeah, he basically was like, no. And he he really instructed the jury that they must acquit.
1: If the gloves don't fit, you must acquit.
0: If the stains aren't blood, you must...
1: hmm. (laughs) If you've sent yourself down an alleyway If the
0: stains are paint... Mm, i mean the problem is you've
1: got to make it rhyme for quit because that's the only (laughs) word for (laughs) acquittal
0: you could rhyme with not guilty (laughs) yeah i can't think of anything so anyway yeah he said they haven't done enough to prove his guilt there isn't a strong enough case here mr h.o carter had done his job well Mm. but who's to say had that wealthy lady not stepped in
1: yeah yeah would
0: thomas clamwaring have had a fair trial
1: so we're satisfied then are we that the uh, testimony of the pub workers is accurate and that he can't have done it
0: i see no reason to doubt them And I, I mean, I have only to go on what I've read, but yeah, anyone could have done it. The judge also pointed out if he had done it, why would he have hung around the street afterwards Mm. chatting to ladies in the street? The matter of of him telling the landlady, the judge basically was like, well, it would be easy for her to have just by half an hour got the time wrong. And by half past three or not long after, it was known. It was known that there had been a murder, so he said again. It's it, in a way, it doesn't matter because that's not enough evidence on its own to bring him in. So he therefore was found not guilty. What do you think?
1: I mean, seems seems like the right yeah? verdict. You think so? If there's any doubt, I mean, I know that's the thing that uh, lawyers play to, isn't it? Just instilling yeah. doubt. But the, well, that's
0: the system. Yeah, you prove guilt, you don't prove innocence. Yeah. You've been a jury person twice. Uh-huh. You should know more than anyone.
1: <laughs> not not really more than anyone.
0: Well, no, not more than a lawyer, but I've never done jury service, so right. I don't know how it works on the day.
1: The thing I always remember is, as you said, the prosecution always goes first. You are basically, by the end of the prosecution, convinced of the guilt of yeah. the... You're uh, like, I can dependence. only see this possible yeah, exactly. narrative as because being one the Because of the way the way that they have constructed it and played it yeah. out. Only for it all to fall apart at the point when the defence starts And you realise, oh, actually... There is a dispute about this fact. This is not as clear cut as yeah. it seems. And then all of a sudden there's doubt and you can't
0: Yeah. Once there's doubt, you can't you can't acquit. Yeah. No, you can no, acquit. You must acquit. You can't convict. The glove doesn't fit. I I mean, even when reading in like in detail when I was reading through the reports of this trial, he, by the I was the same. So by the time I got to the end of all his all the prosecutions things, the witnesses saw him here, here, here. He tried to sell the watch, there was da da da. He couldn't explain whether Bag could come from his story, kept changing. I was like, Oh, he does sound, oh, this is sounding bad for Thomas Clamwering, but yes, of course. Then you hear from the defense, and you're like, Well, they're of course, right.
1: Of course, the prosecution didn't mention that thing,
0: <laughs> of course, they didn't say that all their evidence was circumstantial. Because, yeah, so it's uh, he was acquitted, which all of course leaves us with the question
1: The great unsolved murder
0: who killed Alice Lorne? Do we know? I can't tell you. Oh. I haven't got an answer. They had no one. They had no one else. So Alice Lawn's murder remains officially unsolved. Thomas Clamwaring acquitted. Get on on
1: Reddit. We could cold case it.
0: (laughs) I don't think we can cold case this one. (laughs) So it remains, to this day, one of the best known murders in Cambridge history. And it's unsolved.
1: I was convinced there was going to be some comeback on the dyed water and you're like, but the stains on the coat were only paint. And then I thought, oh, well, the uh, dyed water is paint. And then there's going to be something that links into uh, it. And but that's how you're this it.
0: isn't a TV show. No,
1: well, I thought that's, I thought you would Chekhov's gunned it's, me.
0: It's not like it. It's not like Chekhov's gun. Sometimes it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm afraid. I don't, I mean, it's very dissatisfying for everybody that I don't have a comeuppance or I don't have a conclusion. But there we are. One of the great unsolved murders of Cambridgeshire, the murder of Alice Lorne.
1: I like the way you say that. Like, there's a massive list of unsolved murders. <sighs> no,
0: Probably there's not many. There's a few. Yeah, sorry. I oh, did you know. wanted a twist?
1: I just thought there was. I thought there was going to be a conclusion.
0: I didn't have it. Oh, it was Alfred Flint all along. <laughs>
1: <laughs> First on the scene, eh? Yes. How convenient. Actually,
0: if it was a Agatha Christie, I mean, she wouldn't write about these people because she only writes about toffs, but. Yeah, it would be like, Oh, Rose Rolfe, who said that at eleven thirty she heard a dull noise from inside the shop, actually had been inside the shop at eleven doing the crime and she'd said it was eleven thirty to throw them off, or tiny thirteen year old Jack Cornwall had (laughs)
1: wanted his ball back. (laughs) Yeah, realised he'd left some vital evidence at the scene and was trying to get back in. Oh,
0: exactly, or, you know, something silly would transpire, but no.
1: No, that's real life though, isn't it? Yeah, that's the thing.
0: exactly, that's real life. It's all
1: very well trying to pretend. It wasn't
0: the brother, Horace, there was no inheritance to, to get. Actually, I say that, it t- no, it turned out she did Horace have... Horace ends up at the shop. She did have quite a substantial savings. It's hidden upstairs. And in the bank, so mm. she actually was quite wealthy, but no one knew.
1: Lloyd's Bank?
0: <laughs> yeah. Mm, interesting what you're saying Lloyd did it <laughs> <laughs> is that what you're saying
1: Just no. because of the presence of uh, the old uh, Lloyd's bank thing that would be the other the other the other Hollywood ending would be like he gets off and then there's just like one little thing at the yeah. end that yeah
0: yeah I mean it. it's possible he did do it it just wasn't proved enough so there we are I'm sorry everyone But it's an interesting story. And I think if you know Cambridge, you can imagine the scene. It's quite nice to think of every time you walk down a road of everything else that's happened, not for us, because we live on a new development. So every time Chris and I walk down our road, we're like, well, this used to be a field. But, you know, if you live in in the centre of Cambridge, then all the streets have, you know, years years and years and years and years and years of history. So all sorts of crazy shit is going to have happened there. So, the people in Super Kebab House, they don't even <laughs> they know. They haven't got a clue.
1: Go in there and ask to see the stained sink. <sighs> see Actually, you Kebab. don't want to see the stained sink in the Kebab House, do you? No.
0: I'm sure they are up to hygiene standards.
1: They've got one of those green stickers in the window, I bet. Yeah. Of number four, it will say. At Everyone least, has. At least Everyone number has.
0: four. There we go. That's the story of Alice Lawn. Maybe you know who did it. Phone in. Don't phone. Just send me an email. We'll find some other exciting things from the Cambridge website. Leprosy, as you know, I've been looking into it. We all like a bit of leprosy, and we'll be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, do why not follow us? Follow us on your on your servers. Leave us a, a rating. <laughs> no, yeah, No, something like that. Okay, follow us on your podcast provider. Click follow. Then every time an episode comes, you'll just get a little pop-up. Here it is. And leave us a good review, a good rating. Why not do it? It's locked down. You've got nothing else to do. Okay, see you next time for another tale of murder, mystery, mania, weirdness from East Anglia. Goodbye.